0: All right, so Romans chapter 6, this is lesson 35 in our series, Romans, grace and peace to you. And so Romans chapter 5 and 6 flow together. We make chapter breaks, Paul didn't. Uh, He changes subjects. I wish that those who have added the chapters and verses would have followed his thought pattern instead of just saying. Okay, that's enough verses for that chapter. Let's start a new chapter, uh, which seems to be like what they did, but I know they're they were smart people most of the time. but um, so when we when we look at this chapter, it's it's a response to what he's said in the preceding chapters, but especially some things he said right toward the close of chapter five. And what he's presenting here, is what we call sanctification. And so a doctrine of sanctification has to do with holiness, how we live a holy life. Now, Paul doesn't present all of the issues of sanctification and holiness here. Uh, It would have been great if he would have put everything in order for us, but he didn't. And so we sometimes have to search Scripture, compare scripture. Uh, I like to think that Romans chapter 6 must by necessity be read along with Romans chapter 8, because chapter 8 tells us how this spirit that God has placed within us helps us to live a holy life unto God. But then you also got to add Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 5. That Paul talks about living out this life that's on the inside of us. And so from Romans 6, he presents sanctification in a sense from an outside perspective. Whereas in Ephesians, it's presented more from an inward position. Who you are. What happened to you? You were created in righteousness and holiness. Paul never says that here in Romans But he does say it in Ephesians. So, again, you, you, you need to be students of the Bible. Amen. Because we are students and this is God's Bible. Right? His word. His book. And so we're supposed to be students of these things. Um, but Paul here, again, as he's writing to these Romans, he's wanting to help them understand his gospel, which is the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation. And this is only one gospel. But Paul says, this is what I preach, and this is how I preach it. And you need to know these things. As we've said, there were people in Rome who did know those things because they had been with Paul. They had been... Students with him, fellow ministers with him, um, Ananias, um, no, Aquila and Priscilla, um, others who had traveled with him who were there in Rome, but many who knew of Paul by report, but had never heard him, nor had they read him, unless they came from one of the churches that Paul had written a letter to. Ephesus or Corinth so because there was no Bible they hadn't read what Paul had written but they had heard and how many have ever played that telephone game you know what they call a telephone where you say something to the person next to you and they send it around and by the time it gets back to you what's it called whisper around the world or whatever but what happens is when it comes back to you It it might not even be anything that you said. It's not even close. You know, so uh, that may be what's happened. But there were also, because of Rome, as we've said before, these legalistic believers, Jews, who had come to know Jesus Christ, but still held that the law was superior to Christ. Now, Paul's going to deal with that more specifically in the book of Hebrews, but they believed that, okay, it's fine if you Gentiles get saved, but you got to keep the law. And if you're a Jew, you don't have any choice. You have to live by the law. And so they had this legalistic opinion, and Paul has addressed it from the very beginning of this letter. But he's really going to take to task uh, some of that in these passages here. I'm going to read uh, opening just to read down for a context through verse 11. And so uh, let's read together. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say? Can I just say, what are you talking about? It's kind of what Paul is really saying. So what do we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been set free, or for one who has died, sorry, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Just powerful stuff. There's, to me, some of Paul's most classic writing. Now, there are a lot of things in here. (laughs) And a lot of them have to do with a context. Like, for example, when he talks about baptism, he's not talking about water. That's not the subject at all. Water is a picture that you went through, but that's not the baptism he's talking about. What did he say, you who were baptized were baptized into his water? Is that what he said? No. You were baptized into his what? Death. Baptized into his death. You were buried with him. Now there's a couple of things that we will specifically take up in our next session. But in this session, we want to talk about the very opening of this and the challenge that Paul throws out to this imagined opponent. Now, it may be that he's heard some of these arguments and he's taken their arguments and some of the people that have written back to him have said, Paul, <laughs> there's a real mess here because we've got some legalistic Jews who are teaching this, and maybe some of them had even written to Paul, but Paul knew some things about what was going on there. Like I said, he's, he knows over 20 people in this church. And so he's aware of some of the issues, and obviously what's come back to him is condensed into here one question. And he throws that question out before him. Now, when I'm reading this and I'm looking at numerous commentaries, I got this picture of courtroom drama. Now, Jan and I just, you know, like last year, we went through the entire nine years of Perry Mason. This is pretty cool, really. The old cars in there, I mean, just just to see the cars in there are incredible. And I mean, he's always driving the nicest, and he loves convertibles, you know, so he's always in a convertible. And it is California, so why not have a convertible? And um, they even make Edsels look good back there, which is like, oh, my gosh. But anyway, and one of the things that is so prominent in Perry Mason is I object, right? So whether it's Perry objecting to Hamilton Burr Now, for those of you who have never seen Perry Mason, which I'm not talking to this audience, but there may be people listening who have never seen Perry Mason. Yeah. Um, Or it might be Hamilton Burr objecting to something that whatever he says is, hey, wait a minute, stop. Stop what you're saying. Because what you're saying isn't right. And so that's the whole point with an objection. And so Paul has just made the statement in Romans chapter 5, and we're only going to look at one statement, verse 20. Paul made the statement in Romans 5:20. Now the law came in or was introduced to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now we talked about that in our last session. And so what he what he means is the when the law came in, it just showed how big a sinner you were it didn't it didn't add new sins. there were already sins you just didn't know they were. You have you ever been driving didn't realize that you were over the speed limit and the patrolman is always very happy to uh to you know to accept that excuse no i didn't know doesn't matter whether you knew you were all right so the, the law entering in just helped point out, you are really a sinner. Oh, well, I thought I was just, you know, a little bit. No, you're a really big sinner. Because the law increased the knowledge of sin, the understanding, the recognition of what was sin. It didn't add sins. It didn't make sin any bigger. It just said, this is sin and Paul can already hear the objections because where the law came in and showed you a sinner grace comes along and says paid for forgiven reconciled justified saved what but you but you did the sin you you didn't pay for the sin i don't have to he did well that's not fair. I didn't ask you if it's fair. I just asked you, is it God? <laughs> God doesn't hold to our rules and regulations of what's fair and unfair. So your sin was forgiven, you're reconciled, justified, saved, and all you did is believed in Jesus. So one of the things that had come along in all of that was that in part of chapter 5, he gets into some people will say that this only increases people's desire to sin so that they want to sin more and more. Well, Paul can hear those opponents already throwing their sarcastic remarks back at him. Ah, I get it. All you do, you just get saved and you can do anything you want. You can live any way you want. You don't have to follow any rules. You just sin, sin, sin. Because you're already in Christ. Yeah, but no. And so they throw their sarcasm at him with this cry. I object. What you're saying is wrong. And then I want to trade. They want to twist his words into what they want to put in his mouth. Have you ever had anybody put words in your mouth that weren't what you were saying, but they twisted around to make it sound like something you said? And so they twisted around into this statement, and I wrote it down there. So what you're really saying is the more we sin, the more glory God receives. Is that right? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Hamilton Burr. Is that what you're saying? The more we sin, the more glory God gets. Because the more sin he can forgive, the more glory God gets. So let's just sin, sin, sin. Right? Truth is, Paul didn't say that at all. He didn't even come close to saying anything like that. That is not what's there, but why would they want to interject that question? To what? To Twist the understanding of the people away from the doctrine of grace. They want to intimidate people that are there from believing in grace. So, in this chapter, Paul's going to use several things to show how wrong they are baptism, death, burial, resurrection, new life. All of these things are going to come up in this chapter six. It's pretty cool. All of these have to do with what it means to be in Christ. So verse 1 says, what shall we say or what are you saying? What am I hearing from you? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So those people with their legalistic opinions, their own interpretations of a legalistic attitude towards salvation that you have to get rid of all your sin and after you get saved you better stop all your sin and if you haven't stopped all your sin then you're not really saved you just thought you were saved but you're not saved because if you still sin you can't be saved and so they want to throw all of that out there what about a person ever hear the hypothetical I hate hypothetical questions and they throw this hypothetical well what if a person after they get saved and they go out and do uh, what if I don't know Show me a scripture and I'll deal with it. Hypothetical questions, I can't deal with. Because I don't believe in hypothetical answers. So what he's saying is they have this attitude that anybody with a grace orientation is preaching license instead of grace. That all they're saying is you're giving everybody a license to sin. Interesting thing. Just in this, in this section here, in chapter 5, between verses seven, 15 and 17, I got it written down there. Between verses 15 and 17, Paul used this phrase, free gift of grace or free gift or grace. He used those phrases eight times in just two verses. Free gift, grace. Free gift of grace, gift of grace, gift, free gift, free gift. Over and over, Paul keeps bringing this up just in two sentences. So, does Paul believe in a free gift of salvation? Yeah, it's called a free gift of grace. If that's not enough, it's grace, but it's also a free gift, it's a free gift, but it's also grace. Wow. And so this is what God is, or this is how what God has presented to us. But to them, it sounds like a license to sin and a cheap salvation. Or we've heard the phrase before, I mean, greasy grace. Okay, old greasy grace. Well, in Romans chapter 6 through 8, Paul is going to defend, though he doesn't really need to defend, but think of an apology, which is a defense. Paul defends his doctrine of justification by faith. And so I got uh, down there at the bottom, chapter 6, if God's grace abounds when we sin, then let's continue sinning so we might experience more grace. So Paul's going to deal with that. If God's grace abounds when we sin, then let's continue sinning. Now, maybe you've never heard that argument, but I'm going to show you some things here in just a couple of minutes where people have presented that very argument. That's in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, which is where we're going to be for about three lessons. Verse two or item number two. If we are no longer under the law, then we are free to live as we please. Romans chapter 6, verses 6, 15 through chapter 7, verse 6. We're not under the law, then we can live any way we want to. Is it, did Paul say that? Do you find a verse anywhere where Paul says that? No. no. And then finally, number three, you have made God's law sinful. Paul's going to deal with that in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. So... In all these ways, Paul is dealing with this whole issue and it keeps coming up and he keeps coming back to it because he's not going to let these people squirm out from underneath the truth that he's teaching. You're going to hear this. Where you went, no, you're not leaving this room. You're going to hear this. I'm going to telephone it to you in the middle of the night. I'm going to wake you up. Show up in your bedroom and read these verses to you. Paul is insistent that these people get the point. You're not saved by your works. Therefore, your works don't keep you saved. If your works had to keep you saved, then you had to be saved by your works. But you weren't. You were saved by whose work? Jesus', Jesus works. So whose work keeps you saved? Jesus. Jesus' works. Thank you very much. End of class. All right. But these people are going to the extremes, and they they push this issue, and people will do this. And you're going to run into people, if you haven't already, that do not believe and do not accept the doctrine of grace, and they think that grace is just our excuse to sin as we want to, and um, easy salvation or cheap salvation, however they want to say it. But Paul's going to deal with these issues. He's going to deal with justification, as he has already And it's going to deal with sanctification. And so he twists these two things together. Chapter 5 was more about justification, reconciliation. These chapters is more about sanctification. In Romans chapter 6, he teaches we can live in victory. In Romans chapter 7, we can live in liberty. And in Romans chapter 8, we can live in security. Man, that's a good message for me. Victory, liberty, security man that is that's that's how god wants us to live and paul's going to do this by teaching the believers relationship your relationship with the flesh your relationship to the law and your relationship to the holy spirit and he's going to use all three of those things to show us our liberty our victory and our security now this argument that The more we sin the more grace God gives. He's echoed that already and he's he's dealt with that in chapter 2 a little. He dealt with it some in chapter 3. He dealt with it in chapter 5 in the early verses and here he's going to just confront it head on. But that doctrine that the more he sin the more grace God gets I know we think that's, nobody would teach that. Nobody would teach that. Well, what you've got written there in the little inset paragraph is a man named Rasputin. No relationship to Premier Putin, but anyway. Um, Rasputin. And Rasputin lived back in the early, late 1800s, 1900s. Um, he was this evil. Evil, and I just, I say that outright, evil. Demonic, I believe, possessed monk of the Russian Orthodox Church who was the influencer of the Romanov royal family. And so the last family that ruled in Russia. And Rasputin taught that salvation... This is what he taught. Salvation comes through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. You sin, you repent. You sin, you repent. You sin, you repent, finally you get saved. He argued that because those who sin more require more forgiveness, those who those who sin with abandon will as they repent experience the greater joy, full salvation. So sin, 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 and the more you sin, the more grace God gives, the more forgiveness God pours out, and the more forgiveness you're finally going to reach a place where you say, wow, I got it. You know what? That's really not very far from the doctrine that John was dealing with in the first letter of John, of the Gnostics. Who had this attitude that if you sin, ultimately, your flesh is just physical, so let it burn itself out in sin, sin all you want, and finally you'll get tired of it, and then you'll stop sinning. Let me ask you: Have you seen that working anywhere in the world? No. no. The more you sin, you'll finally get tired of it. It's not working. But that was a Gnostic doctrine, and this somehow reflects some of that. So his end point was, therefore, it is the believer's duty to sin. (laughs) Now, I would imagine if I put that on my marquee out front of the church building, I might be able to get a pretty good crowd. (laughs) It's your duty to sin. Come, hear this liberating message. Uh, because there's a lot of people that would love that now we think that this is just strange well it was actually intellectualized by a number of psychoanalysts and uh, psycho theologians I mean psycho like crazy theologians but even in the last century a man named James Hogg maybe you've heard of him he wrote a book called Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, in which this is exactly the premise that he presents. Now, please don't go out and read the book. It's not a book that you need to read. But reading from it, it's pretty, pretty, pretty dark. And today this teaching is being revived among a lot of the quote liberal leaning theologies. That are trying to present themselves as Christianity. Because if you tell people that what they're doing is sin, doesn't matter, that God accepts it, that it's fine with him, and uh, God celebrates your sin. Oh, no. Bonhoeffer, called that cheap grace. Bonhoeffer. He's the one. <laughs> he called that cheap grace. Yeah, Bonhoeffer. So read Bonhoeffer. Forget Hog. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, the church in Corinth where Paul was at when he wrote this letter had had this problem several years before with a man who had had relations with his father's wife. And the church thought, how freeing, how liberating. We accept you and we think that this is just wonderful. And look look how accepting our church is. The word we would use today is inclusive and so that's fine that's fine with us come on in in fact we'll celebrate it with you paul was incensed read first corinthians chapter five he got so harsh with them not necessarily just there but supportedly there was maybe even a further letter that he had dealt with that he had to write to them in second corinthians part of second corinthians and he says "I'm, i'm sorry I didn't mean to hurt you, but your sin demanded it. It didn't say, you made me do it. It's like your sin demanded this kind of judgment. So, Paul's response. Verse 2. By no means. So, to your object, sit down. (laughs) Right? (laughs) By no means. How can one who died still live in sin? If you're dead to sin, how can you live in it? And this is the premise that he's going to address through the rest of this letter, or this chapter. His answer is translated different ways. By no means which is what this translation says. The NASB, New American Standard, says, May it never be. The Living Bible says, Of course not. The King James says, God forbid. The Phillips translation says, What a ghastly thought. I kind of like that. Only a proper English writer would use that kind of phrase. Brilliant. What a ghastly thought. (laughs) Paul has no use for this. He has no use for even the slightest hint of this being acceptable. Now, in a debate, which Paul is going to enter into, and this is what we call a forensic debate, where he's laying out different things item by item to it comes to a conclusion. So in a forensic debate, Paul is following uh, a certain line where he really doesn't even give his opponent acknowledgment that their point even has any acceptance. Now, sometimes in the debate, you'll accept and trade and say, yeah, okay, your point, this, but what about this? Paul doesn't even, he, he doesn't even stop. He, once he starts, it's like falling down the stairs. He just <laughs> keeps going. And um, he gives them no recognition that their thought is even worth direct response. Instead, he just goes off. He doesn't deal with all of the issue, what about this, and what about the grace, and what about God. He just goes off and says, here's the point. You're dead. Dead to sin. You can't live in it if you're dead to it. And you were buried. And then you were raised up. And you're in Christ. You're a whole different person. There's a whole different uh, acknowledgement of what's taken place there. So... In the strongest words that Paul could use in debate language, he responds to this. Now, this is a classic apology, which again shows our misuse of the word apology, because Paul doesn't say, "I'm sorry, you, you got that, you, you just got that a little bit wrong." No, Paul doesn't. That's not an apology. Apology puts off your opponent. It comes from the Greek word "apo," which means away. I'm gonna, I'm gonna push you away. I'm gonna take your words and push you away. And so I'm going to use my words to force you out of the room. <laughs> You're going to resign from the debate. And so he enters into this thing in fact he inter- he finds he finishes verse 2 with that statement. We died to sin. We died to sin. How can we live in it? So Paul is using this statement, and then without giving the other person an opportunity to respond, he just goes to his next point. And the remainder of this chapter is one point upon another point upon another point, all of it Paul's presentation. And in a sense, what Paul is saying, I kind of put this down in Bold blue there for you. Any thinking person would surely know this. If you died to sin, how can you, Any thinking person would know that. So obviously, if you think what you're thinking, then you're not a thinking person. <laughs> any thinking person would surely know this. Therefore, you have not thought this through at all, How foolish you show yourself to be. I love all of that wrapped up into God forbid. (laughs) How can it be? Now, verses 3 through 14, which we, we read, are Paul's instructional answers. He's going to not just answer, but he's going to teach within his answering he's he's not just going to let them get by with him saying this and saying that that's stupid it, it can't be it wouldn't happen this this and move on no he's going to give them instruction that's paul that's what he does that's who he is and so he he presents this attitude how do those who are under this free gift of grace live our lives so he doesn't just say you're wrong And move on. He's going to say, you're wrong. And here's how we live to God's glory. Here's how we live a life that brings honor to God. Here's how we live victoriously in a world of sin. This is how God works in us and through us to bring glory and honor to his name. This is how we do it. And he does it by these three points. We're only going to deal with the first one tonight. First, by understanding the nature of our identification in Christ. If you don't know what it means to be identified with Christ, you'll never get this point. Which is why so much of the body of Christ doesn't know how to live to the glory of God because they've never understood their identity in Christ to them their salvation is theirs but it's not your salvation is in Christ and unless you understand what it means to be in Christ then all of the rest of this won't make sense so paul is going to spend here and also chapter 7 some and especially chapter 8 and then in his other letters he's going to even explain even more of what it means to be in Christ. Second, not only understanding our identity, but accepting our identity with Christ as true. It's one thing for you to say, well, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm identified with Christ. But do you, do you see that as true? Does it mean anything to you? Or is it just words? Is it just some statement that you picked up from the Bible and you quote and throw out there? Now, I don't mean this in any way to slander somebody or put them down, but we had, we had young men when I was at OBU, okay, the college, my college, anyway, while I was studying, who could quote any part of the New Testament you wanted them to quote. You tell them chapter and verse, and they could start there and quote until you told them to stop. Now, that's, that's pretty cool. The question is, do you know it? Just because you memorized it, doesn't mean you know it. I could memorize an algebraic equation. Maybe, short one. A plus B equals C, you know, but, but to know what that means, you know, and be able to understand. And there's people that can quote passages and they can say the right words. But do you know what they mean? There's people that can say, yeah, I'm saved. But are you? Do you know what that means? Or is it just some phrase that somebody threw at you and one day and you said, well, okay, I'm saved. What is it? Saved from what? Saved how? I don't know. I'm saved. Somebody told me I was. So, Jesus saves, I'm saved. People want to say, universalists, you know, that it doesn't matter who you are. And they'll quote the Bible on it. The devil quoted the Bible to Jesus. Was he right? No. People say, well, you know, everything in the Bible is true. Well, everything in the Bible is truly said. But some of the things in the Bible are the devil's words. Or ignorant people's words. And they're in there. Don't follow them. <laughs> follow the true words. But how do you find out with the true words? you got to. What's the word? Study. <laughs> you got to do some study. You've got to learn. And so this is the principle. Our identity of Christ. Do you see it as true? Just to say I know I'm in Christ. But do you see the truth in that? I'm not asking you to give a dissertation. I'm not asking you to write a doctrinal thesis on what it means to be in Christ. But I am saying, do you understand what that means? Do you see that being in Christ means it's not you? It's him. It's by him I live. My peace is because I'm in Christ. Not just because I'm me. My righteousness is because I'm in Christ. My security in God is because I'm in Christ. Do you see that is true? And then third, by yielding to Christ. In other words, yielding has to do with surrender. That has to do with me acknowledging not only that this is right, that it's true. But I am going to do something about this. I'm going to offer myself. And so the idea of yielding had to do with offering of yourself. Yielding to Christ with whom you are identified. I'm offering myself to him. If I'm in Christ, then Jesus live through me. Show the world who you are through me. So the first of these is understanding the nature of our our identity with Christ. Paul loved to use the word "know." Time and again, I was going to add some of these up. I I could run a phrase search in my Bible and do this, but I was going to search out how many times Paul says, do you know, or and we know, or just we know. Now maybe... By next week, I'll figure out how to do that. But do you not know? And when Paul says, do you not know, what he's saying is, you should know this. You've been taught this, but you're not retaining the knowledge of it. It's more than do you not remember. You should know this. One plus one (coughs) equals. mm -hmm. You should know this. Uh, seven? No. You should know this. Do you not know? And so Paul loves this. And if he's going to ask, do you not know, then what is going to have to go along with that? That he has taught them. That he's taught them. And so he's going to confront them with this, verse 3, do you not know? And he's going to bring that up because Paul loved to see believers brought to understanding. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, what we call the Ephesians prayer, Ephesians 1 verse 17 and onward, is, is not a confession and it's not a teaching. It's Paul praying for the believers to come to this understanding. To the hope, to the riches, and to the power that God has given to them. And he's not teaching them about it. He's not saying, hey, confess this. It's not a confession. It's a prayer. God revealed to these people the hope of their salvation. The riches of their inheritance. And the exceeding greatness of the power of Christ that is working through them. God reveal it to them, but Paul wouldn't be saying that if he hadn't also taught it and so he is believing that people need to come to this knowledge. I put there at the top of page three quotation from Colossians one I know i've used this I've used this before in this class i think and and also in other classes, but this is this is a key verse for my life i I found this a number of years ago. Uh, when I was reading my father's uh, Phillips translation, and it just came alive. So this is the Phillips. I forgot to put that in there. Colossians 1, verses 28 through 29, from the Phillips translation. That's New Testament in modern English, or just write Phillips. Paul says, So naturally, we proclaim Christ. We warn everyone we meet, and we teach everyone we can. All that we know about him. So that. Notice the warning, the teaching was so that. If possible. Because I could teach them, I could do this. But if I'm teaching somebody, there has to be something on their side too, right? So that if possible. That is, if they've learned, if they've listened, if they have Put into practice any of these things, then if possible, we may bring every man up to his full maturity in Christ. Now, it's not going to happen just because I stand up here and spew out a bunch of things. It's not going to happen because Paul writes a letter and everybody reads it. No, it's going to happen because he did his part and we need to do our part. And so he says, that I, can, that I may bring every man up to his full. So Paul's not going to stop what he's doing. He's not going to stop his pursuit for you to know until every person is brought to their full maturity. How long do you think that's going to take? Well, it took all of Paul's life. This, he says, this is what I'm working at all the time. I love that. This is, this is what I do all the time with all the strength that God gives me. So he's not just doing it out of his own effort. I'm drawing upon the strength of God. Help me learn. Help me see. Help me apply. Help me proclaim. Help me get this across to the people. That's his desire. To Paul... Next point, knowledge is key. Knowledge is a key. Believers don't know. Now I I would love if there were all these empty chairs that are in this room, were filled up with people who are under 40. Or even in their 20s. But they're not. How do I get them in here? Do they need to know? Do our younger generations need to know? How do we get this across to them? Teaching's been discounted, set aside. Church gives me this opportunity, and again on Sunday mornings to teach, because they want people to learn. But it's my generation that comes, and some <laughs> step down. It's a little step, step down. Got Daniel and. Sarah back here, holding there. There. up the young crowd. Knowledge is key, but how do we get people to learn? I was with, with Pastor Bob today. I just thought about this. We were, we were with his ministry, I'm on his board, and we were reviewing all the things. He's got a cre- tremendous amount of knowledge that he puts out through his ministry, through his website, through his books, through teachings, through TV. Incredible amount of knowledge. I would, wanna, I would like to see the demographics of how many of those people are younger. Now, a lot of them, because they go to Andrew. And so, Karis, what's, what's the demographics there? It's about half and half. That 50-50? That's great and wonderful. Where's all the young families pursuing knowledge. Breaks my heart. But you know what? I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. You know what? I know some of you have been in the Word longer than I have. I'm not saying you're older than me. You just started earlier. But you still come. And I, I hope i can impart something each week that is meaningful we're recording these you know for video use and sunday school program that jonathan is doing through voice of china and asia and he's going out 30-minute sunday school lessons and jonathan sends this out and he's got numbers of people now watching and some responding and i think that's that's incredible Uh, opportunity to touch people and many of those people do, don't go to what we call word churches. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. said knowledge is, is vital. So here's the first thing. Paul says, don't you know, verse 3. Verse 6, he says, for we know. Verse 9, he says, for we know. So three times, Six verses, we know, we know, we know. This is one of the greatest things that he could do. Now, to me, one of the greatest presentations of the principles of new life that are taught out of this passage is in this book, Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. How many of you have read this? Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. How many have never read this? You need to. You really need to. And I love one of the things that he presents out of this in the very opening. He says, I I title this book The Normal Christian Life, but really what I'm talking about is the abnormal Christian life. Because most believers aren't living the normal Christian life. And he talks a lot in here about in him truth and in him realities and what it means to be in Christ and the application of that. You can get this through... Amazon or wherever the normal Christian life it's not a big book now granted there are places that you stop and say okay I need to read that page again okay I need to read it again All right, let me read that again it does make you think and it makes you think deeply oh really I gotta think deeply I mean thinking is enough but thinking deeply do you know how hot it is outside So, think about this book. And because what he's saying in here are things along these lines and some of the most beautifully presented truths that you'll find. But here's, here's the phrase I want to close with. We died. You say, really? We're talking about two words tonight? That's, that's it? We died? Actually, I'm going to break it down. The, the phrase, we died into two parts, we and died. (laughs) We died to sin. I put a list there. Look at those. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. In these verses, every one of them, He talks about death. Verse 3, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Verse 4, we were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death. Verse 5, we have been united with Him like this in His death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified, that's dead, with Him. Verse 7, anyone who has died has been free from sin. Verse 8, we died with Christ. If you haven't got the point, (laughs) we died with Christ. Now, out of this, here I go. Have I got time? Oh, man. Out of this, I'm going to get a little Greek on you. All right. All right. So put your Greek hats on. I know it's late at night and it's hot outside. We. First point. We. Yeah. 2 little word. We. In Greek language, uh, I'm even study Spanish or French or any other kind of one of the what we call romantic languages. You'll know that the pronouns are in the verb. So it's a masculine, feminine noun, whatever. He, she, if it's plural, they, whatever. So the, the noun, the pronoun is in there, unless the writer specifically wants to draw attention to the identity of the person. And then he not only uses the proper verb, he also includes the pronoun in the verse, which is what he does in all these passages. So when he wants to emphasize that subject explicitly, he puts the pronoun in with the verb. And so What Paul is doing by using this pronoun, I know it's Greek grammar, here we go. But by using this pronoun, he is making a contrast about the we who are in Christ with two others. One, we, versus others who are not in Christ. So, we are in Christ as opposed to those who are not in Christ. They are what? If you're not in Christ, you're what? Unbeliever. Damned. That's where you stand, condemned. Others who are not in Christ. But to believe? To believe that Jesus died, rose again? Your identity is in Christ. or it's not only to those who are not yet in Christ, it's to ourselves before we were in Christ. And so I could say, we now. But we now. Not we in our past. Because we in our past were not in Christ. But now, we are in Christ, right? So these two uses of this and... They're both found in these passages, those who are not in Christ and also us before we were saved. And it it could possibly be interpretively stated, not translated, but now we, as to contrast our state with others. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, an excellent writer, incredible, incredible teacher, pastor in England. um, He says in his commentary, the whole emphasis is on our uniqueness. We died with Christ. They didn't. Not everybody died with Christ. We died with Christ. Before July 23rd, 1972, I had not died with Christ. But we now have, because you believed it's our uniqueness it's our special position we being what we are being who we are this is what makes the question in verse 1 unthinkable well you know how do we how do we live you know in sin if you know i don't know see do, do we just Live in a way we want to? That's a stupid question. Paul doesn't quite say it that way. And the final point, not only we, but we what? We died. died. Second part. Second thing is the tense of the verb. Oh, boy, I did come for a Greek class tonight. I'm already deep with pronouns now. You're going to get into verb tenses. Yeah. Died. In the tense of the verb... Died is called aorist a-o-r-i-s-t those who are listening a-o-r-i-s-t aorist tense which means something that is complete it's not just past it's, the Greek is not a past tense it's a completed tense it means it's over, it's done it was an action that was completed somewhere in the past and you're not talking about how long it took to complete you're just facting that it's done we what? Died. Over. Done. Yeah, but but we're living. No, you're not. Not that we. That we died. This we lives. We died. Some people make the mistake in using this tense and in commentary or preaching, you'll hear people use this and apply it with different tenses, as if it was a present tense, which means we are dying to sin. No, we're not. We're not dying to sin. We're dead to sin. We're not dying to it. Or they might use it as a what is here, read it in your notes, past imperfect tense. Oh yeah, I know what that is. A past imperfect tense, which means We have died and are continuing to die. As if that was the beginning, but we have to continue to die. We better, well, Paul said, I die daily. All right, total different subject. We'll cover that. Or they turn it into a future tense We shall die. When we get to heaven, we shall be dead to sin. But while we're here, we're not. You died. That's it. You're dead to sin. How can we who died to sin live in it? That's his end point. If we're dead to this, it's over, it's done, it's finished, it's complete. There's nothing left for us. Now, next week we're going to move beyond two words. My intent next week is to get through verse 11. So you have that down there. Because we died to sin, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, not into water, but into death. That is so powerful. I can't wait to get to it. Okay, but we will. All right? So, that's our class today.